Hello there. We try to get guests on the Price of Pain podcast from a wide variety of backgrounds. As a result, even though we've done that, we've been focused so much on research that I was very excited to get the opportunity to talk to a physician, somebody who spends the majority of their day treating pain. And what's fantastic about today's guest is that not only does she do that, but she's also active in researching both pain treatment and strategies to improve accessibility to said treatments. With this episode, I bring you Dr. Manika Patel. She's an assistant professor in the Division of Pain Management up at UF Health in Jacksonville in their Department of Anesthesiology. She's a fellowship trained in pain management, and she's able to share a perspective that you just can't get from research alone. If you've got a keen ear, you might also hear uh, some interjections from a very special guest, my growling stomach. So sit back and enjoy this episode, and I'm going to go seek out some coffee and breakfast. Cat, do your thing. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. I began my interest in pain management actually working in an orthopedic spine center. And I, um, at that time, realized how impactful um, their pain and what we do is on their quality of life. And I just got to see those patients throughout that year and the progress that they made. And that was shortly after medical school. And I... um, And so that's a a one-year fellowship for for pain? That that was... um, this was before I even started my residency, oh, but okay, a fellowship okay. is one year, okay. yes, for pain management. And okay. some fellowships are two years, depending mm-hmm. on if you do one year of uh, clinical, one year of research. I see. Then I did my residency actually in physical medicine and rehabilitation. So okay. kind of similar background um, to you in that I did have to learn a lot of the musculoskeletal system mm-hmm. and kinesiology, which I thought was a great foundation for diagnosing and treating pain. And then I, um, and that was at University of Texas, uh, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Mm-hmm. And from there, I really wanted to do um, not only pain, but cancer pain management. And so then I went to MD Anderson. And um, What sent you that way to, to cancer pain specifically? Well, while I was a resident, um, I was able to have collaborations with MD Anderson And I found that treating patients with uh, cancer pain is so unique. And um, I found it so gratifying because being a part of that time in their life, which is most definitely the most difficult, and um, being able to to be there to support them, and also just um, the complexity of all the different things, every patient was completely different. Yeah, and uh, it, it was just a, a wonderful training program. It seems like with with cancer pain, and this is something I'm a bit naive to. None of none of my work is is in cancer pain, but it seems like there are a number of of avenues just within that paradigm. Whether it's pain that's resulting from the cancer itself, or you know maybe even pain from treatment. Yes, and then I would imagine you could also delineate between, you know, like palli- palliative care. And so that what, um, 
was there a specific sub-focus that, that you were most interested in um, mm-hmm. during that time, at least? Yeah, so during that time, the fellowship was basically focused on interventions, and the palliative side, supportive care side was our partners, mm-hmm. and so we would do the interventions that would enable them to have a better quality of life without necessarily having as much of the uh, opioids or um, other medications that they may be having side effects from. And um, But it was a team. I think it's always a team. So you're just one of the, one of the arms helping out, and it had to be very collaborative. And from there, um, I moved to the University of Florida in Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So our partners, right? And that was a very different demographic because now my cancer pain practice is about 20% of what I do. And the rest is more of the aging, degenerative spine, musculoskeletal system um, pathologies in a very urban setting. So how much um, do you, if, if you could draw a line somewhere at a percentage between research and practicing medicine, how much of each do you do uh, on any, not necessarily on any given day, but you know, over the course of a year, let's say? Or... Yeah, so I'm clinically heavy, mm-hmm. and I enjoy that. And I, I really wanted to bring the research in because I found there was a need, particularly in um, aging, health disparities in that specific population that mm-hmm. I treat. So on any given day, um, I have my research assistant in the clinic um, recruiting patients while in the meantime, whether it's evenings or weekends or whatever it is, depending on the cycle of, of the um, scholarly work, I'm working on grants, talking to my collaborators, publishing papers, mm-hmm. and um, talking to my patients. It's got to be a lot to manage. It's a lot. Um, one of my mentors, who's also been on your podcast, Dr. Phil and Jim, said, mm-hmm. well, you know, you have more than one full-time job, right? Yeah. And, and then, yeah. of course, balancing the family, right? Sure. So, so he likes to say I have three full-time jobs, which I kind of enjoy. I, I really feel like um, the clinic is, is so rewarding. You know, you take care of patients, and they're so grateful and if they're not where they want to be, then you still work with them on it. And I really find that gratifying. But at the same time, you know, a couple hours later, I'm reading this new article or I'm talking to one of my collaborators about this exciting opportunity. And, and then, then that um, makes me interested in a new way. And then I come home and spend time with my family, with my, you know, my baby girl. Mm-hmm. And, and that's another joy in my life. And so... So um, if you think about the pie of how my day is divided, it's, it's, it's nice. It seems like a, a lot of divisions, though. That uh, keeps, you, keeps you switching. But I, I do know what you mean. Um, there's, I found, at least in the, in the same way, there's, there's a little bit of a break. Even if you're busy, say, from 6 in the morning till you know, 9 o'clock at night, if you're changing what's keeping you busy over that, it can be refreshing and, and you know, help you to avoid getting burnt out. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a question, though. Um, so you're in a really unique position. Uh, I'm not clinical in, in any capacity. And so all, all academia. And as a result, 
there, you know, I, I try to, to at least add to the literature in ways that can be useful and that can translate and be applied immediately in mm-hmm. clinical settings. But I don't know whether they are, um, you know, and so that to be able to, to kind of walk either side of that line and really have your finger on the pulse of what's current and what needs to be addressed, I would imagine that's really rewarding. Um, but also, is it is it frustrating? Does it, it seems to me that it would require a bit of humility, um, especially since, you know, particularly with pain science, the evolution and the learning curve is still steep. So, you know, you may have been treating someone or, or a population a certain way and then you realize, oh, wow, there's there's really a, a better way to do this now. Uh, and you have to, without you know being critical or negative, but like, oh man, we've really been doing this wrong. Have, have those things come up as well? Yeah, I, 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 really, I really relate to that. Um, so when I'm in the middle of, of treating a patient, of course, the back of my mind is, is just thinking about all these possibilities. And then I feel the barriers mm-hmm. in the way. Mm-hmm. Like, even if I know there's a better way, there is, there's so many barriers, whether it's, um, you know, just the resources that we have available at the time, insurance limitations, or whatever it is, there's a multitude. But then those are things that I necessarily can't control at this moment. But then I go back to the drawing board. I'm like, well, you know, I can make a difference in this other way and in due time, Hopefully things will get better. But okay. but if I was just clinical and I was reaching those barriers, mm-hmm. then I would sort of feel like, um, what a loss. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. To know it's out there and not be able to, yeah. So, do you? And and this is not you personally, but you know, keeping in mind, of course, I'm relatively naive to the clinical side. So I have all these questions, uh, despite you know working with physicians pretty regularly. Still, you know, there's things that come up, and so. I wanted to ask, uh, particularly with, with pain research, uh, do you have avenues where you can advocate? You say there are barriers, you know, if, if new knowledge or, or the possibility of, of the effectiveness of a treatment changing, um, do you have ways as a physician where you can advocate and say, hey, look, we really need to, at our institution and, and whatnot, and I don't want to ask a, a, you know, a radioactive question, <laughs> of course, uh, this is nothing against where you work or or anything, but do you have avenues as a physician where you could say, yeah, we need to be doing more of this, look at this research, and so on and so forth? I think there are avenues, um, whether it's within your department, within your um, institution, but also with the local societies, mm-hmm. right? So you have your Duval Medical Society, then you have your national societies for pain that mm-hmm. may have some more... Um, political um, connections where policy change can happen. However, like I had mentioned, there's only so much time in the day. So you basically I voice at national conferences or at these society uh, meetings, but you almost have to pass the, the baton at that point and say, hey, this is something that needs to happen. This is what I can present as support. But then you you pass it on to the ones that are really in those decision making roles. Yeah, you ha- you can only wear so many hats, right? You have to right. prioritize. Yeah. Okay. So uh, now you mentioned that that you branched out from cancer pain to where you are now, and and listed some of the uh, the areas. Run me through some of those. What are what are some of the things that you see uh, most frequently? Whether it's 
you know, within the aging population or any of your continuing work in cancer, uh, what, what do you see most prevalently um, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, even, even if it's local to Jacksonville? Well, I think the most common would be um, arthritis of the joints, particularly in the spine. So the small joints are your facet joints, about the size of your knuckle. And those typically wear and tear where we bend and twist the most, right? So lower back and the uh, neck. And, and that can really limit quality of life and function, right? So just washing dishes and standing there for 20 minutes suddenly becomes painful. Turning your head to drive suddenly becomes painful. And then you also can have um, discal herniation, which can cause uh, radiating pain, numbness, tingling in an extremity. And depending on um, the patient, they may have had a, a long life, many, many hours of manual labor type work. And then you get wear and tear of you know even more areas, including shoulders, knees, hips, you know, fingers, and, um, and it is rewarding to try to help these patients continue to work if they're still of working age, or if they're not, if they're, if they're um, at retirement age, just making that quality of life for them better. Is that really the, the main goal is just to allow, first of all, in, in diagnosis, and then secondly, in treatment? Um, and we talk, uh, for example, uh, Dr. Roland Staud here um, had a, a lot of conversations with him about, okay, well, when it comes to osteoarthritic pain or fibromyalgia, what criteria are the most important? And, and almost always the conversation comes back to how limiting is it for the patient to be able to do you know, what they want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, would you say it's the same with what you're, what you're seeing there? Um, let's, and let's just stay maybe on, on the spine for now. Is that the big thing? Is like, well, okay, you know, pain, pain is really the issue or, or, osteoarthrit, or osteoarthritis rather is the issue when it starts to interfere with the daily activities, be it work or whatever that you want to do. Is that really the yeah. kind of the gold standard? Yeah, there was um, a study that was done many years ago where just a random sampling of patients had their MRIs taken of their spine. And I'm sure you've heard of this. And half of them had degenerative changes and osteoarthritic changes. They were living their life without being afflicted at all. Right. We and see that so, in the knee. That's where I've seen it mostly also, but same, yeah. Yeah, and so so I tell I tell the patients, I'm not treating your picture. I'm, I'm treating you, right. you know, how is this limiting you, right? And that's really the goal. Um, how, how can I help them have the quality of life that they need? And like I said before, whether it's cancer pain or non-cancer pain, you're just one member of a team of, of people that are trying to get them to where they want to be. Yeah, yeah. So. And there, you're practicing in a, in a very unique region um, in by that, I don't even mean region, specifically the state of Florida, a lot of the, the opioid crisis mm-hmm. that, that everybody, I think, regardless of, of our audience's background, has heard of at some point or another. But in many ways, when it comes to treatment of pain or other maladies, maybe that, that don't necessarily require opioids but are still being prescribed, Florida, in a lot of ways, has been an epicenter. So as in pain management, as, as a physician who specializes in pain management, 
how difficult it is, is it to walk that balance with knowing that now particularly on on a national level there's a hypersensitivity to the methods that you think are best uh, to treat pain and that, that you know you may have to branch out yeah that's a great question and I, and I do find Florida because of the history of the pill mills have actually been a little bit more aggressive from a political standpoint on regulating opioids. Mm-hmm. With a lot of house bills that have come out over the last um, four years, which probably have made it better in Florida than other states where when it comes to really um, managing how opioids are prescribed and um, do we do a good job. A couple of years ago, we actually uh, invited pharmacists to work with us in our pain clinic just to help with uh, making sure that these patients were getting um the monitoring that they needed, Mm -hmm. and also to make sure that we were falling in line with what was required by the state and what was required by their insurance companies because they did put um, different regulations there, which clinically makes sense, you know, as far as trying to offer them the lowest amount of opioids and make sure that you're evaluating them for benefit at Mm -hmm. um, significant intervals and monitoring them for opioid use disorder, which is when they may be selling medications, taking medications um, not as prescribed, developing an addiction, and doing urine drug screens, and making sure that those are being um, interpreted properly. Mm -hmm. And the opioids are just a small portion of what can be offered for pain management, right? Yeah, I definitely want to go down that road. Before we do, I just did have one other question that was on my mind about that. Oftentimes when, when we find that we're in a crisis of some type, which which we were and, and arguably still are with, with opioids and opioid addiction, the reaction that governing bodies tend to make, you know, if if for example, with Florida, because it's an issue, like you said, so now there's a hypervigilance and, and they're aggressive with, with changing some of the policy. Have you found that in doing so that the pendulum swings a little bit and in some ways it's been restrictive in the ways that you can treat pain when you do feel that, that the opioid prescription is the best way for a particular patient? Yeah, that's a great analogy. And I use that analogy a lot, um, that it has been a pendulum. So before we were... Um, just because of the literature and the knowledge at the time in the 1990s were under-prescribing, and then there was a pendulum swing in the early 2000s to over-prescribe, and now we're swinging after the CDC, I think it was in 2016, um, put out the recommendation saying that so many patients or people are overdosing, um, really wanting to limit opioid use, in, in 2016, the pendulum swung far on the other end. And I'm an outpatient um, physician, but if you think about the inpatient side, particularly, um, you know, perioperatively or in the emergency room where people are in acute pain from a polytrauma or bone fractures, you know, were they being under-medicated, I, some of my colleagues said, yes, they were. Hmm. And um, now the pendulum has, has swung back to somewhere in the middle. And somewhere in the middle sounds great because that's where we need to be. But I think that now if we are prescribing opioids again, there is more patient education that's really required 
and uh, mandated by the state due to certain regulations. And um, the patients actually have a choice. And I do find that there's a lot of patients that say, hey, you know, I've heard a lot about these opioids. Can you give me something else? Can I try something else? Whereas before it was on almost almost this is what you're getting. Right, and there wasn't right. necessarily that conversation. And patients have been advocating for themselves and their care. And so they help us find where that middle is. Well, it seems like there's some pretty interesting literature that, that I've come across over a, a fair amount of time now, 10 years or so, that, uh, that really supports that not just in pain, but I think that specifically with pain and some of the characteristics of pain treatment that this may apply even more, but that you see better outcomes when patients are at least given a choice for their own care and the ability to advocate for themselves and say, okay, well, you have this option or this option, which would you choose? You know, And, and it seems, at least from what I've read, that that actually increases, um, you know, the efficacy of, of treatments, again, not just with pain, right. but across the board. When you get to something as, as subjective as the pain experience and, and how much of, you know, the psychosocial factors right. play into that, I feel like it, it maybe even enhances that effect here. Yeah, I agree. Um, and there is a lot of psychosocial aspects, including not feeling like you're in control of your care or your control of your outcome, and mm -hmm. then you sort of spiral in that catastrophizing. And so really having a discussion of this is why you're having this pain and in, into, um, into something very simple as to just saying that you may have to deal with this for the rest of your life, and it may have something that progresses very slowly but these are all of the options available to you and you can pick and choose what you think is going to help you and you can try all of them or you can try one or you can just see what happens right and um, having that conversation just gives them a lot of peace of mind and in the past and this is completely anecdotal i've had patients say well 20 years ago, I saw a doctor and they said that I was going to be on opioids my whole life because I have this accident. And that was it. And I've accepted that as my reality. Wow. And I don't think doctors are saying that anymore, at least that I've heard. But that really, that really sets up a stage for a patient to think that this is their future when you tell them you're going to be on opioids the rest of your life when they're, you know not that old. Right, right. And um, there's a lot of um, beliefs that surround that, especially when you're saying, hey, there's other ways. Let me try to take you off the opioids, right? Yeah, yeah. something with fewer side effects or, you know, right. health consequences. Yeah. Well, and and not only that, and, I, and this is something that, that I'm not sure that I'm even aware of, but we know now that, that there is, um, uh, I guess, a, a desensitization to exogenous opioids. So if you take, you know, opioids, say you have, this is your prescription to manage pain for the rest of your life, if, you know, for right. one of these people. Um, but that, you know, let's just say it's one pill a day. Forget about, you know, milligrams or whatever, but one pill a day. Not even taking into account how complex pain and chronic pain is. Just from a biological standpoint, how long does it take before that one pill is no longer sufficient? Right. So not long at all. Right. And so <laughs> so that seems to, to be one of those, oh wow, 
time to circle back to this. We we really didn't get that right kind of things. So yeah. that that's all thrown into the the chaos of this crisis now. Right. Yeah. And and there's there's many clinical strategies to uh, mitigate that um, what you're describing, which is tolerance. And I I do think that um, it's sort of an exciting time with the opioid crisis, it, it opened Pandora's box into thinking, hey, we got to do things different. But what does different look like? Right. And now you um, also superimpose the COVID-19 crisis mm-hmm. and all the variants that came after and people being on lockdown for a period of time, maybe having unemployment and that psychosocial aspect of it has only increased. And I I do find that a lot of the gains that we have made before the, the pandemic, the addiction rates and you know people wanting more opioids, again, whether it's because they're having worse pathology or limited access to care, or if it's more of their own chemical coping to deal with their circumstances. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's really made it challenging in a new way. A lot of that progress went right out the door. Huh? And then and then of course, you know, a lot of our opioid crisis isn't just from doctors, right? right. It's from it's from a lot of other um, entities selling, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. <laughs> well, and yeah, that's that's one of the things you you mentioned how comprehensive the strategy is for limiting addiction. Um, and one of those things you, you were talking about, you know, blood tests or, or whatever screening. Um, I know that there are some patients will come in and exhibit drug seeking behavior. They, you know, for whatever reason, they, they need this opioid. So they'll come to you and say, Dr. Patel, you know, my back has really been bothering me. You say, oh, well, we should try this, and, and here's a prescription for physical therapy and blah, blah, blah. And they say, oh, thank you. And when they don't get what they want, they go somewhere else you know, for the same thing until they can get mm-hmm. that prescription that they're seeking out. So, And, and a lot of that, um, you know, if they're not getting it from doctors, they're probably, well, I don't want to say probably, but likely supplementing right. in other ways as well. Yeah. Yeah, and some patients are very straightforward about that. They'll say, well, if you don't get it, I'm going to go buy it on the street. What's better? Wow. And um, is that, I, <laughs> does that method of persuasion work very well? <laughs> well, I just, it's all about education. Yeah, yeah. And so I just educate that if you do that, this is what's going to happen to you. And if you don't, then this is what's going to happen. And it's, it, it, it's their body at the end of the day. You know, I'm not their enforcer for what they want to put in their body, but I can at least educate them on what they're doing. Yeah. Right. That's always better when you know, even when it comes to raising kids, you know, if you give a no and then a reason why no, and hey, like if, if I say yes, this is what could happen. Sometimes that, no pun intended, yeah, pun intended, that pill is easier to swallow when, you, when, <laughs> when you're delivering no and this is why mm-hmm. and the genuine concern, particularly as a physician, I'm looking out for you and this is, you know, this is what I'm worried about if I were to do this, you know, or, or if you were to go and get this on the street, this, now these are, another host of, of things you have to consider that could be problematic, et cetera. Yeah. And I found over the years um, that approach has been has been great. I, I, we we continue that patient-physician relationship. They don't feel like I'm judging them or I'm mm. 
accusing them of something. I'm just educating them and offering them that resource. I feel like as as physicians, we are looked on upon for that information. And so and so in a couple years or maybe even in six months, I've had patients come back and say, hey, you know what? I'm ready now to do it the way that you said or right. Yeah. I, you know, so is that trust in light of COVID? You mentioned now the, the added complexity that comes along with, with managing COVID and, and all of the effects of COVID uh, that bleed over into pain management and whatnot. But just as a physician, there is a lot of contention out there right now. And you know, we've, we've transitioned from a time where if you have a question about your body, you ask a doctor. And now there's this widespread doubt and nobody, you know, people want to confirm what they already think they know, regardless mm-hmm. of whether it's from an educated perspective or not. Right. Is it is it harder to establish that trust with your with your patients now in light of the COVID era? I don't think so. I think that um, trust is established through your relationship with them, whether it's about pain, whether it's about, you know, their heart attack they just had. And at any moment, that trust can be taken away, whether it's me trusting the patient or them trusting me. And so it's sort of having that um, that good communication. And also, it's earned, just like with anybody, any relationship, it's earned. So if, if you earn it, you earn it. Mm-hmm. And if you lose it, you lose it. And I think COVID has brought a lot of doubt and patients will ask me specific things about COVID and they will share their political or medical view based on whatever information they have. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, I can offer them what I know, but with the caveat of there's a lot we still don't know. Yeah. That's, but it is real. That's because, difficult for a lot of people to accept. Um, yeah. You know, whether it, whether you're an MD or a PhD, you know, we're at a strata of of society where, you know, even even teachers, and I, I don't say that like they're on a, a different level, but when when somebody it's their job to know, admits, well, you know, we don't know, or even specifically, I don't know. Let me ponder this, and so on and so forth. There's we've transitioned into a time where that pops up as a red flag, I think incorrectly so, but pops up as a red flag that says, well, now this person is no longer credible. When in fact, that's how science works. That's how medicine works. And to admit that you don't know, or we as uh, a field don't know, that should just be the opposite of a red flag. That should help to establish more trust in my opinion. But but I've noticed that lately it's not always received that way. Yeah. I I do think that um, I'm always really honest, and I don't think that patients expect us to have all the answers, but they want you to tell them whatever you do know is true, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you think about science and medicine, we haven't figured out everything. Right. Nobody can assume that we've figured out everything. But they do expect you to say, hey, this is what I know for sure based on this evidence. Mm -hmm. This is what we don't know. But this is how it will affect you. Right. Right. Right? And um, I really haven't had any issues with, with patients being upset with me because I don't have all the answers. But they do appreciate 
that I am honest with them and not leading them down some some path that I'm not sure about. Right. 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 Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned Pandora's box. And as soon as you say this, I, I've, I've made the joke on, on multiple episodes and had to resist the urge to just a moment ago when you said we don't know everything. That's job security for me as a scientist, because that means there are more <laughs> questions to ask and, yeah. you know, more papers to write. But um, but when with this Pandora's box of the opioid crisis pushing us into a realm where alternative treatments to opioids for pain management either need to be utilized or discovered. That's got to be great also being someone who conducts research and who is active in on the academic side of things as well. How has that changed your practice? Um, and how has it changed your research interest as well? Yeah, I, I really would like to have more um, non-opioid alternatives. Mm -hmm. And there's several that I wish that we could offer that we know about, right? Like Such acu as. like as acupuncture, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, and just even having group sessions mm -hmm. where patients can support each other and how beneficial that would be, or home exercise programs for patients that can't make it to the gym or don't want to because of COVID and mm -hmm. they're worried about that. And so that has really driven more interest and collaborations with other individuals that are doing that. And um, I find it really exciting. I still feel like I want it today and I have to right. wait for it to happen. What are some of the barriers to that? Well, part some, of Some it, of the treatments that you would want to do that you have seen evidence for their effectiveness but are unable to. Well, for example, acupuncture is cash. They have to have cash to pay for that. And it's not something that I can offer in the clinic, but I can refer them to places. But it's it's expensive. And oftentimes it's outside of their their means and or time restrictions, right? And the physical therapy is the same way. I feel like they're offered a certain number of sessions or they can't make it to... Um, to leave their house because they have childcare issues mm -hmm. and they're not necessarily sick enough for home health, right? But just having virtual physical therapy, right? So I'm working on a project with that right now. And um, sort of the projects are evaluating the needs of the non-opioid um, adjuvants. Mm -hmm. And then using that to hopefully get some more funding and to offer these services to our patients so that they don't have to worry about the financial or the time restraints. So it sounds to me that in, that the barrier is not so much that there aren't effective treatments. It's that you need more access in, in increasing people's ability to take advantage of those treatments. Correct. Hmm. And so... We have, uh, we have a, a number of guests that have come on that, that have spoken about pain management in a number of ways. We've discussed CBD. Um, mm -hmm. We've had uh, Dr. Chris McCurdy has been on uh, and will be back on to discuss Kratom specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these, you know, you mentioned acupuncture, but some of these botanical, um, whether you want to consider them supplements or treatments, um, have, have you... 
have you spent any time looking in into that area at all? And, and if so, how useful and, and in what ways do you think if they are useful, what specific treatments um, do you think show the most promise? Yeah, so that's a great question. So as a pain physician, I run a very tight rope, right? Mm -hmm. So on a national level, the DEA still considers all of that illegal. Right. And um, my prescribing license is from the <laughs> DEA, right? <laughs> And but then locally, right, there's especially in Jacksonville, there's a CBD shop where you can get everything probably every couple miles. Right. Mm -hmm. So my patients and I, we have that discussion and I say, hey, I cannot prescribe this for you. I cannot. But if you're interested in this, there are physicians that can help you figure out that path. And I can try to make sure that if you are using that, that you have a medical marijuana card. It's for the right indications. And there's almost this disconnect between medical marijuana and smoking marijuana, right? So I have to tell them smoking marijuana is still illegal, right? Right, right. And I have had some one patient in particular that was allergic to every single opioid, did not want to be on marijuana, and she didn't find it beneficial. I think she tried it on her own. Mm -hmm. And she did find relief with Kratom. Interesting. And that was the only thing that helped her. And so anecdotally, I do see the CBD oils or the medical marijuana help patients. Um, but I also see that it helps a lot more with their anxiety. That is also cohabiting their pain. Exactly, yeah. And um, But from an actual clinical perspective or research perspective, I haven't done the work of seeing how beneficial it is because it's not something I can personally offer. So where, where, where's the delineation there? You said that you could refer them to physicians who could, I would assume, prescribe the or, or um, assign them a medical marijuana card. Who, how does that break down uh, in healthcare? Who, who, can, who can do that and who cannot? As far as I know, at the University of Florida, because we are a public Mm -hmm. state institution, I don't believe anybody at the University of Florida can prescribe that. So there are private entities and um, physicians that have that particular license in the private world. But that is, again, cash only. And mm -hmm. this is just quoting my patients. It's $400 for a medical marijuana card. Wow. And then after that, they have to purchase the medical mm -hmm. marijuana products, which there's a whole like a whole market, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you have to do a bit of a two-step to even understand how that works. You had mentioned how, for whatever reason, there is a, a difference in view, at least from a legal perspective, of smoking marijuana to uh, having a, a medical marijuana card where perhaps you're, you're you know taking edibles, which not even talking about bioavailability and, and, and how they're metabolized differently. Just the fact that it's it's essentially the same substance, but for different uses. And, and there are a lot of pitfalls that, that stand between people who could perhaps benefit from that as a treatment, uh, that, that, that are genuinely seeking that out as a pain treatment um, or, or a, a, you know, a treatment for, for emotional, you know, whether it's anxiety or depression or whatever. Um, but there are a lot of pitfalls, it seems like, to, to actually getting to the point where they're 
can can address can I afford this like between between right. actually pulling the trigger on getting uh, you know medical marijuana as an example right and so a patient that would like to be on opioids but then started to smoke marijuana it shows up in their urine I can't prescribe them opioids right mm. so then they're sort of left between a rock and a hard place do I do I spend the money on a medical marijuana card do I do I qualify for that? And then if I go down that route, will I be able to then get opioids? And then is it safe for me to have opioids and use the medical marijuana? And then at what end, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a lot to manage all at once, a lot to juggle. Um, so within, within your time at, uh, at UF Health in Jacksonville, what have, what have you seen in your, just from your personal opinion, not in the field, where have you really seen, wow, we've seen a lot of success here. I'm, I'm, you know, whether it's a specific treatment or within a specific pain population, where have you really been excited about how much you're, you're able to help people? Can you narrow it down to one? So that's a loaded question. (laughs) I've, I've now been at UF Health for just over six years. And I do think that I, I find benefit in the interventions that I do, especially mm-hmm. the radiofrequency ablations for the uh, osteoarthritis pain. Mm-hmm. And I have found success in um, treating the cancer pain and just sort of multimodal therapies. And, and I do enjoy that a lot. It's mm-hmm. gratifying. Mm-hmm. I, I love when a patient comes back to me after I've done a, a procedure or changed their cancer regimen, and they're like, I went to church, and I didn't take my walker or my cane, and everybody was clapping as I walked in. Oh, that's got to feel so and, good. And, and I love that. Yeah. That's yeah. why I go to work, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> so on the flip side, then, is there is there an area where, like, wow, we really need to spend more attention in more time we're not quite there yet that that if i have 10 patients that come in with fill in the blank i really wish i could get more of those 10 to to the stories that you're telling me there yeah i i do find across the board um um chronic health conditions really stem from you know obesity Mm -hmm. there's a lot of uncontrolled diabetes obesity um and untreated depression, anxiety. And there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And I feel like if I had more time with them, then that psychological counseling, you know, mindfulness um, treatments and nutrition support, and um, it would just really make a difference for the quality of life. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that um, for those that have the accessibility, you know, doing aquatic therapies, which we don't have access to, right? They have to be sent um, sent out for that. And, and so a lot of the things that just help overall health mm-hmm. would also help their pain. It seems that outside of the medical community, I can't speak for you, but outside of the medical community, people are screaming for well, preventative care and the things that you're speaking of now, if, you know, being on a healthy diet, um, the self-care that, that hinges, you know, very much so on activity and proper rest, even, you know, just establishing that, that basis. And, 
And then there's another crowd, and of course there's an overlap that says, well, what about these holistic or at least traditional medicine, alternative medicine? There are a number of names for these, and we're starting to merge some of the, the terminology. But, um, you know, these other practices like acupuncture, you know, how far are we away from, you know, actually getting these to be considered more mainstream to where insurance companies will cover them as treatment and and they're more widely or they're able to be prescribed by physicians how, how far away is that i feel like it's really far away i wish it wasn't i i feel that unless there's some significant um, support and those treatments become more affordable from not only a patient standpoint, but from a coverage standpoint for the insurance carriers, they're not going to really um, want to be a part of it. And so I'm hoping that there's sort of this societal transformation mm-hmm. where as a culture, we want to have more preventive care, right? And I know this is an international podcast in some ways, but some countries do it a lot better than ours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So well, and and from from my background as an exercise scientist, the, you know there there are plenty of people that are are saying this, but the fact of the matter is is most people that that buy into, well, and you know an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? right? Unfortunately, the people that don't buy into that are the ones that need to embrace that the most, and so there's a little bit of a paradox where, you know, it's it's difficult to talk about prevention when you are type two diabetic, you're obese, you have, um, you know, some stage of kidney disease and you're in pain for something and you go to a physician and they say, well, the best way to do this is to, you know, do this for your diet, do this for your activity level, blah, 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 blah. Well, it's no longer preventative at that point, right? So there's, there's kind of a chicken or the egg thing there, but the other side, um, with uh, with some of the the alternative medicines and treatments and whatnot, there's at least from the research side, I can say from a first person perspective, there is more funding now, whether it be for CBD and marijuana research, there is more activity in looking at um, you know CBT uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or um, mindfulness meditation, acupuncture. So there there are avenues there for for federally funded research. Um, so what, I guess when I say how far away is that and you say it's a long way, that's that's the part from my side that's frustrating. It's like, well, we're, we're producing this evidence here, or at least give, being given the avenues to, to seek out um, some of these answers. And yet it still seems to be so far away from a treatment standpoint. That's, that's a little frustrating. Is it as frustrating on your side? It is, it is. So so if you think about it on a clinical side, okay, so I work in Jacksonville, okay, most of my patients have some sort of public insurance, right? Mm-hmm. So Medicare, Medicaid, city, city insurance. So let's say by next year, they decide, okay, we're going to cover this resource for you. Now I need to find practitioners that actually do it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I don't have anybody like that in my clinic. So so then I have to find practitioners that actually do it. And then I have to make the connection of, hey, patient X, 
I know that you're used to all these other treatments, you know, opioids and injections, but are you open to sitting with someone and doing cognitive behavior therapy? Are you interested in acupuncture? Are you interested in, um, well, there are interested already in the medical marijuana, but, mm -hmm. but then you have to kind of open their mind to it right. when they don't know anybody else that's done it. They, right. Most likely. Maybe they do, but usually not, right? Yeah, depending on the treatment, of course. Yeah. Like you said, there are some more familiar than others, yeah. I can see why it's so daunting, for sure. You you mentioned uh, RF ablation earlier. That's, I, I'm, I'm sure some people, uh, you know, about five minutes ago went, oh, what's that? And so for those who had that question, can we circle back to that as a treatment? What What is that? How, how is it used? What? Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, so... In the majority of joints, um, there's a sensory component, or, or a little nerve ending that's providing the, the pain signal to the joint saying, hey, something's wrong with this joint, you need to get off the joint, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, particularly in the spine, in the facet joints, we can use um, a, a technique using fluoroscopy or x-ray guidance and do testing for that nerve mm -hmm. and then Essentially, radiofrequency ablation just means destroying that little nerve ending. So now your joint structurally is exactly the same. You still have your arthritis, but you don't feel it. Mm -hmm. Are there downsides to that? I mean, obviously, there's at least in acute pain, you know, it serves a purpose. Um, if it's is it is it one little nerve ending? Is it a groove? Obviously, there's probably a spectrum to how this is applied. But what are the downsides to that, if any? Yeah. So actually, you said in acute pain, we would never do it for acute pain. Okay. Because acute pain is sort of temporary. Right. This is more of a, a longer-lasting um, approach. And so for each joint, where that little nerve ending is and what it's called is different. Mm -hmm. But um, the downside is that the little nerve ending grows back. So it's uh, not so it's, permanent. It's, it's a temporary solution. Yeah. And, that's, and that's a downside because it probably will work well, but then the little nerve ending grows back, and, and then we have to do it again. And that's what... What is frustrating about it? It's not permanent, so... Um, How intense is the procedure? Well, I'm sure everybody performs it differently, but for me, it's like, it's not long, maybe 20 minutes, and wow. you numb it pretty well before you before you damage it. Mm -hmm. So if anything, you just feel an ache and a pressure for about a minute. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And the, are the patient's awake during this? When I do it, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. It's just safer. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, I'm sure there'll be many people on the call that disagree with me, but <laughs> but That's for me, welcome I... <laughs> welcome to my world. You can't please everybody, but yeah. So from your expert opinion, that's how you like to do it, and that's that's what that's what I'm interested in for yeah. the purpose of this conversation. Uh, so, what are there some other treatments out there that people may not be as as aware of that uh, that are non opioid treatments for pain that um, that you want to share with us? Well, I think that. What I find, and I'm also a physical medicine rehabilitation background as well, is, you know, use it or lose it, right? right? right. So keep the muscles strong around those joints as best as you can, mm -hmm. whether that means doing low-impact exercise, whether that means getting into the swimming pool, but don't sit around all day, right? Right. Because you're just setting yourself up for a spiral where the pain just gets worse, you get weak, you get less functional, right? Yeah, it, it's, uh, I've, I've had 
a, a number of funny conversations. Uh, what you mentioned Roger Fillingham um, with Roger about uh, about how you know the there are very few panaceas um, that, that you say, okay, well, this is the magic pill. And if you take this, this will help with this, this will help with this, this will help with this. Exercise is actually one of them for, I would, you know, I'm going to throw out a, a somewhat arbitrary number, but for 99% of the people out there, exercise will help, at least help, if not cure, a number of these uh, these conditions or maladies. But then what you end up with is, is people that want the pill that allows them to not have to exercise to do it. Uh, so it's really frustrating, at least, you know, and I'm sure you can sympathize with yeah. this uh, with our shared background. But, um, yeah, if people just realize that and not only not only with with, uh, you know, some, you know, the, the joint conditions and degenerative joint conditions that we discussed, but even with muscle pain, surprisingly enough. You know, muscles have have the capacity to uh, to do some pretty interesting things when they're being used and active. So even even muscle pain itself, there's a, a barrier that you can get past that that the more active the muscle is, the less painful that muscle is, which is a little bit counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. It makes things really difficult. And that there, there's there's a, a, a an area that I'm really interested in that that, that attempts to bridge um, you know, that, that gap, can we in, in a a short-term way mitigate this pain to get you to a point where then the pain is no longer a barrier to your exercise, Right. you know, and it may be in the short term, but, uh, and I, I find that wildly fascinating, whether it be, um, you know, we did a little bit of work, um, back in graduate school that, that primed us for a study I was super interested in that we never, we never went down that path. But um, we were looking at, at different types of, of claudication and uh, that arise from, from vascular disease and say, okay, well, if you can, if you can treat this, say, with uh, near-infrared phototherapy and, and, uh, and, and improve vascularity to uh, or, or even just blood flow to, say, the legs and allow people to improve their exercise tolerance in the short term then over time, will that exercise in turn improve their cardiovascular health mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, remove the, the need for that bridge? Um, I think that's that's wildly fascinating stuff, too. I don't know um, in your realm if you have anything that's an analog to that. Um, how, as a matter of fact, let me ask that. How often does exercise and exercise as treatment, um, not even just physical therapy, but exercise in general, uh, come into your world yeah. in pain treatment? Well, on a personal level, I totally <laughs> believe in that. I make sure I exercise every day. But I think, um, you know, and that's how I I educate my friends and family, right? Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the patients, by the time they've made it to my clinic, um, they've probably been down a road where exercise may have not played as important role. Mm-hmm in their path, in their journey. Probably in a primary care office, it may be more um, more relevant for them to see that benefit of exercise, like, oh, this person made lifestyle modifications and now they're doing so much better. But I'm sort of the last resort place, right? Right. And, um, but I do educate that, um, particularly if someone has, you know, myofascial pain or trigger points, you know, I'll say, hey, I can put medicine in there. Mm-hmm. But this is what you're going to do because your muscles are unbalanced and this is a stronger muscle and this is a weaker muscle and this muscle is shorter than this other muscle. 
So I'm going to give you a little reprieve by giving you this treatment, but then the work's on you to stretch it out and strengthen, and it does help them. I mean, I've, I've had patients that, you know, went back to surfing or whatever they were doing, yeah, right? I was, was going <laughs> to ask that. So when, when you're able to treat, successfully treat, someone for pain, even if it's, you mentioned the patient that, that was able to go to church without their walker anymore. So if if I'm an older adult and I have a walking aid um, that prevents me from doing things, or if I have pain that prevents me from doing things, when that pain is gone or the need for the walking aid is gone, this is arguable, but you would think that to an extent, your natural tendency is like, well, wow, I can do this. I'm going to do more. Do you see that those who, you know, whether, you know, it's in their follow-up visits or whatnot, report, yeah, I, I am more active. I've been doing this, this, and this. Yes. Do they have better outcomes over longer term? Well, it's really their self-awareness because sometimes they just, and this is a true story, they'll decide they want to hang the curtains all around the house and climb up on the ladder. And it's like, no, 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 please don't do that. Right, right. right. <laughs> I'm so, 55 again, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And, and I, I know that you're busy. You came from out of town here and you've got a number of other things to do today. But um, but on behalf of our audience, uh, a very sincere thank you for, for taking some of your time for us. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain podcast, all one word, on Instagram.